It's Thursday, August 9th, and this is The Daily Dive. Last week, there was news that 11 malnourished children were found in a compound in New Mexico. It was a bizarre story to begin with, but now it has taken an even weirder turn. According to prosecution documents, the remains of a boy have been found, and the man who was at the center of it all was allegedly training one of the children in the use of an assault rifle in preparation for a future school shooting. National security analyst Ryan Morrow joins us for more on this story, including details of the compound and the weapons found. Next, a member of Congress has been charged with securities fraud and insider trading. GOP representative Chris Collins sits on the board and is the largest shareholder of a company called Innate Immunotherapeutics. He is accused of passing along insider info to his son, who sold his shares and avoided losses in excess of $700,000. Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico, joins us to detail the allegations and how the information was passed along. Finally, have you heard of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch? It is an island of trash floating between California and Hawaii that is three times the size of France. Elizabeth Weiss, tech reporter for USA Today, joins us for the big cleanup effort happening soon, a giant floating trash collector made by the Ocean Cleanup Project. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The breaking point for us uh, was last Thursday when a message that we reasonably believe came from an occupant of the compound or somebody with great knowledge of the compound uh, sent a message saying basically that we are starving and the children are starving. Joining us now is Ryan Morrow, national security analyst and Fox News contributor. A story broke where authorities came across this squalid compound. They found 11 malnourished kids. They were ages 1 to 15. There was five adults there that they ended up arresting. Now we come to find out that there was the remains of a boy found there. Prosecutors are now saying that one of the adults there was training some of the kids in weapons training for a possible future school shooting. What do we know about all this, Ryan? This is just one of the craziest stories I've seen in recent years. It basically begins with the abduction of a disabled child, a three-year-old boy in Georgia by his father. And then he escapes. They find him at this compound in New Mexico near the border with Colorado, this remote area. And they set up essentially a terrorist training camp. It's an Islamic extremist group. They're acquiring weapons. They're, they have a shooting range, even a 150-foot underground tunnel with a, right. with a hidden escape spot. The authorities know that the fugitive is there. They think the boy's there and all, all this is going on. But the FBI keeps stalling saying they need probable cause to go in, even though part of the compound is on private property and the owners of that property were like, yeah, come on in, you'll need a search warrant. They just kept delaying. And then finally, last Friday, the police in New Mexico learn of this message that the kids are starving, that they need food and water. And they say, that's it. We're not waiting on the FBI anymore. This is insane. And they went in and did a remarkably dangerous operation that, thank God, somehow did not result in a shootout. And they arrested five adults, rescued 11 kids, and they believe they have found the corpse of the disabled boy. Now we're learning more about the, the broader ramifications of this, is that they were training the kids to carry out school shootings. It's unbelievable. Yeah, the boy that was missing uh, was struggled with seizures. He had a birth defect from lack of oxygen and blood flow. The father took him on a walk to a park or something, and then he never returned. You had mentioned that there was a tip that came out from the compound that the kids were hungry. Who provided that tip? Somebody from within the group there? 
it sounds like someone from within the group, somehow, I guess a text message or something, went to people in Georgia saying that they need food. Now, the adults are not cooperating still, so we know it wasn't like they were held against their will. The kids were too young to have those devices, so I guess it was they thought that their communications were secure at that point. And then the New Mexico authorities learned about it, and that's when they undertook this extremely dangerous operation on this 10-acre lot. As for the exorcism, yes, the kid it needed to have his medicine twice a day. The father rejected modern medicine, and that's how you know he's exceptionally radical, because even al-Qaeda members take medicine. And he said there has to be essentially an exorcism or, or an Islamic prayer to expel the demons responsible for his disability. And it appears to that's the, be the reason. That's why the kid uh, passed away, unfortunately. This compound and these people were on the radar of FBI for quite some time. As you said, there was a, a land dispute. They didn't need a search warrant because people that owned the land said, go ahead and, and, and search. It was a, a case where these people that had built a compound built some of it partially on these other people's land. Exactly. And every single person in law enforcement I've told this to, their mouths drop. Even when they raided the camp, some stuff that they should have seized, like a laptop and guns and video cameras, were left behind. And the question out there that we have to ask is whether this boy's death was really inevitable. If the FBI had gone in earlier because they knew since the beginning of the year that they were there, this boy might have been saved. It was not hard for me to get a good idea of how they got the weapons to find indications of financial and identity fraud. If I can put that together as a civilian working for Clarion Project, and that's part of what we do is help the authorities, I can only imagine what resources were available to the feds. Talk to us a little bit about the compound. It's been described as a training camp with a shooting range. Neighbors had heard a lot of gunfire consistently over the course of months. The way it was set up didn't seem like the work of amateurs. They had like a tire perimeter and a bunch of stuff. Right. So at first people were making it sound like it was just a crazy guy that abducted his son, found some other crazy people and they were hiding out. And all my sources, including in the Muslim community that know the family, were saying there's just no way that's the case. And it looks like just a heap of garbage. But when you look at it more closely, you see a trailer that's half buried. That's done for tactical purposes. Plastic over it so that nobody could see what was going on the inside. They put shattered glass on the ground and wood with nails so that it makes it hard for people to come up to the compound so that they would hear the noise and then become alerted so they could start opening fire. Tires forming the perimeter, and the kids are just in horrible conditions, but they were shooting up until recently, and the neighbors were saying, yeah, this is bad. It doesn't take much brain work to understand that this is a horrible situation, and those neighbors are some of the bravest people on earth to try to get them evicted. You know there's Islamic extremists on your property with guns <laughs> training for war, right. and you try to get them evicted in court? I mean, that's, <laughs> that is guts. How far away are other properties? What does it look like, the landscape? Well, it's the middle of nowhere. It's at higher altitude, I'm told. The police had no way to surprise them. These guys knew they were coming. Or if they didn't, then I, there's some genius move on the part of police. The neighbors could see the outer part of the compound. They would even meet the kids. They thought that they saw the missing boy there in January and February. They were close enough that there was interaction and they had good eyes on the site. Obviously not was going inside and not was inside the underground tunnel, but enough to know that all this is there. The neighbors are understandably giving quotes out there where they're like, how did this happen? I'm still asking that. I, I don't get it. Ryan Morrow, National Security Analyst, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Oh.
Congressman Collins is charged with insider trading and lying to the FBI. As alleged in the indictment, Congressman Collins cheated our markets and our justice system. Joining us now is Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico. Representative Chris Collins, a New York Republican, one of President Trump's earliest supporters, was charged with insider trading. He was on the board of an Australian pharmaceutical company. As the story goes, he tipped off his son and then everybody started selling stocks. What happened? That's the general outline. In fact, he was this company's largest investor and even convinced some of his own colleagues in Congress to invest in this company. And he got a call while he was actually at the White House congressional dinner in 2017, which had basically told the key drug this company was working on. It failed its clinical trials. According to prosecutors, in a moment of panic, he called his son and said, get out, sell your shares. Something bad's about to happen. And then a few days later, when the company made the drug trials public, the company's stock tanked and they avoided losing a lot of money because the Collins family did, not Chris Collins himself, because they had sold those shares. Yeah, the company was an Australian biotech company, Innate Immunotherapeutics Limited, and they were making drugs for multiple sclerosis. And as you were saying, the only drug that they had had failed in its clinical trials, scientific trials. The representative Chris Collins knew the stock was in a tank because of right. it, because it just looked horrible. And as you said, within days, they started selling it. I think he found out about it on June 22nd. By the 25th mm -hmm. or the 26th, they were already selling stuff. And I think they avoided losses of up to $570,000. Even more, it was actually 760000 or something in that range. It was a large amount of money that they avoided losing because Chris Collins had allegedly shared that insider information with his family. Chris Collins was already under investigation just for being on the board of this company? Uh, not just for being on the board, but for uh, similar questions about what, whether he uses insider knowledge inappropriately. He was being investigated by the Office of Congressional Ethics, which looks into these kinds of conflicts of interest when they get referrals and things like that. So he had faced scrutiny for his relationship with his biotech company already. He had been very open about trying to convince his colleagues to sign up and invest, and that drew a lot of scrutiny. One reason prosecutors said he didn't sell his own shares because he knew that would have triggered too many red flags, but that he did subtly tell his son and other associates uh, what was coming so they knew to get out. The big question, how could a member of Congress who's sitting on the House committee that has jurisdiction over healthcare companies be on the board of this pharmaceutical maker and still be the largest uh, shareholder. I think there was five other House members that mm -hmm. were also also had stock bought in this company. Yes, that's, I think that's right. It's about five five others that he sort of convinced to to participate. And former colleague uh, Tom Price, who became Secretary of Health and Human Services, was a big investor too sold his shares before any of this went down, but still that drew a lot of scrutiny during Price's confirmation hearing. Now, at this time, none of the other congressmen are involved in any of this stuff. They would right. had their stocks and whatnot, but they're not involved in any of this insider trading stuff. No, as, as far as we're aware, he didn't tip them off or anything. Some of them sold their shares much later. Um, uh, Mike Conaway was one of the five, a Texas Republican, and, and his office suggested to me that, that he sold his shares in November of 2017, many months later, at a significant loss. So from the members we've heard from, is they didn't have any awareness of this and, and were not tipped off in any way. And since he's been under investigation, for so long, they obviously talked to some of these other congressmen as well, or you guys talked to some of the other congressmen, mm -hmm. and was he being pushy or was he trying to 
really sell the stock or was he just kind of passing over little hints? It depends on what you consider pushy. You know, Doug Lamborn, another one, a Colorado Republican, said that he never felt pressured by Collins to invest, that Collins laid it out for him and he made his own adult decision about to invest. But Collins himself has admitted that, you know, he touted this company. He thought it was really going to be a breakthrough for multiple sclerosis and and thought it was a good investment. So the real question is, when he learned that that wasn't going to be the case, who did he tell? And then prosecutors say it was family affair. What kind of punishment comes with these charges? I think there's seven charges total against uh, Representative Chris Collins. His son is also involved. His son's the father of his uh, fiance is involved. Yep. Uh, what kind of punishment is, is related to this? These counts carry year, years in prison. It's actually seven counts of security fraud, but there's also wire fraud charges, a conspiracy charge, and making false statements to investigators. So there's a whole litany of charges that can carry upwards of five, ten years in, in prison. This is not just a slap on the wrist he's looking at. And one of the reasons I think he's so forcefully contesting the charges altogether. And Speaker Paul Ryan also kicked him off of his committee. He did. And that's, you know, sometimes, you know, these are murky situations because he hasn't been convicted of anything at this point. But Speaker very quickly said he's no longer going to be on the Energy and Commerce Committee that one the committee, as you mentioned, has jurisdiction over these issues. And it shows that they're not going to wait around to see what the legal verdict is before at least insulating themselves from that that problem. I think you guys wrote that the value of his stake that he lost was as much as $17 million. Yep. I mean, that's huge. It is huge. And I think that you're going to hear that argument um, that for, for prosecutors, though, that's not what it takes to prove an insider trading kind of a crime, because he couldn't personally sell his shares. Everyone would have realized what was going on. Right, right. In this case, he alerted a family member, which is still that's a breach. You know, once you've provided non-public information to someone who, who makes an investment decision based on that information, you've committed insider trading in their view. And so that's the argument they're making. Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Anytime. Good to be here. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch measures 1.6 million square kilometers. That is three times the size of France. The patch contains 1.8 trillion pieces of plastic. The total mass amounts to 80,000 tons. Joining us now is Elizabeth Weiss tech reporter for USA Today. There is going to be a huge effort to clean up something called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Apparently, it's a Texas-sized island of trash between California and Hawaii. So there's this just floating mass of plastic and trash in the ocean. A startup company is, they're called the Ocean Cleanup Project, is going to make an effort to clean that up. What's going on with this? that there are actually five of these floating garbage patches in the world's ocean, and it has to do with currents. So these are areas where there's a kind of a, you can almost think of it as a slow whirlpool, you know, where all the leaves gather. If you see water going down a drain someplace, maybe in your uh, garage, and the leaves all gather, that's what's happening with all the plastic trash that gets into the oceans, and about 40% of it is lost fishing nets, which are called ghost nets, and the rest is just trash that people throw away. And the problem with this stuff is it's actually really dangerous for marine life because prior to the 1950s, a lot of trash ended up in the ocean, but all of our trash was biodegradable. It was made from wood or paper, and it was part of the great recycling of life. Plastic is different. Plastic never goes away. It just breaks into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. And the problem with this stuff is that as it gets smaller, animals, marine life, eat it, and it fills up their stomach, and then they can't get enough nutrition, and so they die. 
And now we have the ocean cleanup project, which is like a huge setup of pipes. It's kind of in a U-shaped design and it floats above the water and then has nets that go about nine feet down. The thought process is that they're going to launch it into the ocean near the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And it's just going to kind of use the currents and winds and collect a bunch of the trash. This is the brainchild of a 23-year-old Dutch guy named Boynton Flat. And I'm, I'm sure mispronouncing his name because I do not speak Dutch. And when he was a teenager, still in high school, he went diving off the coast of Greece. And he saw a ton of plastic trash in the waters around Greece, which isn't uncommon. Uh, and he was horrified by it. And it kind of started to obsess him. And he ended up he graduating from high school in Holland. He started working on just ideas of how would we deal with this. He ended up going to the University of Delft, where he was in the aerospace program, but he did a TED talk about how there was this problem and here was this idea he had of how we might clean it up. And it got so much traction that people ended up doing a, it was an online campaign to raise money for his ideas. He dropped out of school and now there is this nonprofit based in Holland that is building this contraption that it hopes will kind of sieve out some of this plastic, and they're building it here in California. And his idea, and it's going through multiple iterations, the one that they're going to launch on September 8th, it's a Saturday, and they're inviting people to watch them do it, where they're going to live stream it, is this 2,000-foot series of four-foot pipes. I mean, these are huge pipes. They're closed off at the end, and they form kind of a floating boom, if you think of it that way. Under them hang this nine-foot, nine feet of netting. And once they get it out, they're going to take it out a couple of hundred nautical miles off the coast of California. They're going to test it for up to three months. It kind of naturally forms into a U-shape. And the idea is that the currents move faster than this boom does. And so the trash will come into the middle of it and it won't be able to get out, and the nets below will stop the first nine feet of the trash, and a lot of it's floating, but the fish and whales and seals and dolphins can go under it, and it will concentrate all of this trash, and then they're going to send out, as, it, as those levels get higher and higher, they'll send out a boat that will dredge up the trash that's in the middle and take it back to land where they're hoping to... Um, they're saying that they expect it to collect 50% of that trash every five years, but it has its naysayers saying that, uh, you know, it's not really getting to the root of the problem, which is limiting plastics going into the ocean in the first place. When you talk to oceanographers and there's an entire scientific field in ocean oceanography of people who are studying what are called microplastics, which is the fact that we have introduced all of this plastic garbage to the oceans and what it's doing to wildlife and where it's going. And their point, I'm going to make a couple of points, but I thought the most interesting one is they said it's all well and good to clean it up, but the problem is if you don't stop the fire hose of trash that is getting washed into the oceans every year, cleaning it up kind of doesn't do any good because one guy said, you know, it's you're in the middle of a sandstorm and you're sweeping up. He says, you don't close the door. Nothing you do is going to help. They're called the Ocean Cleanup Project, and it's going to happen on September 8th. Elizabeth Weiss, tech reporter for USA Today, thank you very much for joining us. You're so welcome. Bye.
All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>